Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and we're going to jump right into part two of our conversation on building wealth with personal finance expert and author of Everyday Millionaires, Chris Hogan, and U.S. News Senior Editor for Personal Finance, Susanna Snyder. Chris, you often mention mentors giving you good advice Mm -hmm. through your career. Where do you recommend a listener look to for a financial mentor they can trust? And this may be different than your financial planner, your financial advisor. Mm -hmm. This is somebody Mm -hmm. maybe a little closer to home where you're going to trust their advice without sort of the fear that they're just trying to, you know, get that 1% of of what you're investing. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that because that's really important as I talk about working even with an investment professional. Uh, the key is is to find someone that has the heart of a teacher. Okay. Now we've all been around a slimy salesperson before in our lives, right? And you can kind of feel it. You kind of need to take a shower when you get done because it just didn't feel right, right? It feels grimy and gross. But at the same time, we've also worked with people that were reputable, that you knew they weren't trying to take an angle. They were honestly trying to help you. To me, that's the heart of a teacher that you want to look for. And I want you to look for those kinds of people in every area of your life. Uh, I don't care if you're looking, talking about a dentist or a mechanic. I want somebody that's truly trying to help me, not just trying to get something from me. Uh, But looking for a mentor is something that's available uh, to us. Listen, growing up in Kentucky, the the gentleman that had the most impact on me as a mentor and even financially growing up, he was a 32-year plumber, a plumber, right? And you might say, well, what did he know about stuff? That man knew a lot. He taught me more than I learned in grad school. So I would encourage anyone out there, if you're looking for a financial mentor or a mentor, look for someone that's having some success you know, look look for someone that's doing things well, but they're not bragging, right? They're not boastful about it. They're actually very humble. And you'll have to ask them questions before they answer. That, to me, is someone that has the right kind of spirit, and I want to learn from them. That's really interesting. How did Who, who was this plumber? How did you meet him? What's his it phone actually, number? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, he actually passed away oh, several years ago, uh, but he was someone I went to church with. Ah. And so, you know, being there and just talking and it was an interaction through through at church, just getting to know him, getting to know his son a little bit more. And so it was one of those where just having conversations. Um, I've always been wired in a way that I want to learn from people that know stuff. Right. I, I, I don't I want to I want to fast forward progress in every area that I can when possible. And the best way to do that is to get information, but to also start to apply it. And, and that's why I want people to have the courage to go talk to an investment professional, uh, go talk to people that have information that can help you. Because when you get helped, who else can you help? You know, I think that's the thing that I want people to hear in my message is to push past that fear so you can make progress. But then you can also be able to help other people get there as well. So you mentioned going to grad school and that had me thinking about another aspect of your book um, which my takeaway is that you are not a big fan of student loans. <laughs> you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you recommend Suzanne, you, staying away. So, yes. so yeah, Susanna, I'm curious if, if there's a if there's a place for them. You know, a reasonable amount of student loan debt. Ooh, How can people ooh. approach approach student loans? There's no oh. amount reasonable. Well, okay, you just said something that I would say is an oxymoron. <laughs> you said reasonable and student loan in the oh, same no. sentence. <laughs> Listen, here's the deal. I, I look at this and I talk about, you know, I want to give people a PhD in economics. And I'm about to do it here with just a couple sentences. Anytime you use someone else's money, they charge you a penalty called interest, right? If it's a credit card or student loan, car loan, if I use someone else's money, they charge me interest. However, interest can also be a reward, 
when I'm gaining interest in, in my investments or my savings accounts or whatever it is, I'm gaining it. So I don't want people to be penalized with interest and pay it. I want them to re be rewarded by earning it. So debt for me is honestly a four-letter word. Uh, it's a thing that I look at and I go, this debt steals from people, right? So in grad school, when they told me the phrase OPM, right? Other people's money. I heard that. And I listened when they talked about leveraging, right? And it sounded so sophisticated and cool. What did I do? I ran out and did it, right? And so I look at it. And when you start to clean up a mess, what you do is that's where you get real world knowledge. That's the wisdom I'm talking about. So student loans are not anything I'm ever going to advise anyone to do. Uh, there's a story, Pam, in my book that I talk about, uh, Everyday Millionaires, where this lady was so focused, her parents had taught her about debt to the point Point, that it took her 11 years to finish her undergrad degree. 11 years. She didn't graduate till age 31. But here's the deal. When she graduated, she got a diploma, not a payment book. Okay. When she graduated and started working, her money stayed with her, not going back to someone else. So I would much rather young people take more time as opposed to taking on a bunch of student loans. Listen, 62% of these millionaires went to a public state university. Okay, average cost of that university is around 12,500, right? Now, not those fancy schools, Suzanne. I see your face running the numbers there. I'm talking about basic schools. But listen, 9% 9 didn't go to college at all. 8% went to community college. So there's a way to gain higher education without taking on student loans. Most people don't like it because it's just a slower process. But there are scholarships and grants available as well as work study. So be aware of the options and be careful. So would you say the only amount of student loans that's acceptable is zero dollars? After that, you're really you're running I, into I mean, trouble. Well, I mean, I'm, listen, for me and somebody that's been a financial coach that has helped people over the last, gosh, 15 years try to figure out how to dig out and pay these student loans, mm -hmm. every single one of them said if they could go back, if they could go back and talk to themselves, it's something they would have avoided like the plague. Yeah. So yeah. for young people that don't understand money, Sitting in that financial aid office with that stack of papers there where they're nervous, overwhelmed, and they don't know what they're dealing with, and they're about to put their signature on this line that says that they have an opportunity to get a higher education, I feel like that's a terrible situation. I feel like that's a situation where people don't understand what it is they're doing. And for parents to be sitting in that financial aid office with them about to co-sign on a loan, not understanding that, hey, they, they may have to end up making payments for, the, for, this, for this loan because they're, they're guaranteeing it. That's what a co-signer is. I just feel like there are slower ways, there are more opportunities to do it without bringing that pain in your life. And now, I am not condemning anybody with student loans, okay? Seven out of the 10 of these millionaires in my study never took out a penny of student loans. But I'm not telling someone just because you have student loans that you can't become a millionaire. I'm not telling you just because you have student loans that you've done something wrong. What I'm saying is, is look at this and look at it for what it is. And let's hurry up and learn how to count so we can move things forward in our direction, not someone else's. I want to take a moment to talk about goal setting. You write about how important it is to set clear, measurable goals from the start when you're trying to build wealth. Hmm. And you list the popular, the smart method, specific, yes. measurable, achievable, relevant, time-sensitive goals. Why is goal setting, perhaps more importantly, realistic goal setting so important when it comes to your finances? Well, I think goal setting is imperative just because it helps us aim our effort. Um, when you set a goal, uh, and especially around this time of year, at the beginning of a new year, people typically call them resolutions. 
And, you know, we, we so easily write down things we want to do. And even though we can look at the list and know some of that stuff we ain't going to do, you know, uh, like getting healthy, uh, you can't find a place to park at a gym right now, right? Everybody's joined the gym and showing up and being there. But the reality is all you have to do is wait till about the second week in February and you can park wherever you want. You know, there's space there. People fall off because we're not committed to them. So I want people to set goals, things that they're really serious about achieving, but break it down so you can know the steps. You know, having an annual goal is one thing, but what's the weekly goal that's going to put you on track for the monthly goal that keeps you on pace for that yearly goal? That thing for me, that's, this is the goal setting has been the things that's helped me change my life. And whether that was in, in, in my academic side or my athletic side, or even in my business side of things, I need to be able to aim my effort and I need to know what the score is. Am I getting closer or am I moving further away? And you even talked that the simple as just forcing yourself to write things down can make such a difference. E even if you have the great plan and it's all detailed in your head, until you write it down, it's not something that's going to happen. Well, this was something I myself figured out in college. One of my coaches had us write down goals of what we were going to achieve in the next football game. And you have to understand, I was 17 years old on a college campus. And when the coach said this, I thought, this man is crazy. Like, we haven't played the game yet. What does he mean? He wants me to write down what I'm going to do. And so I wrote down some things. And I realized, looking at it in my handwriting, right, and knowing that I was going to be turning this in, this was something that I had to be serious about. Right. It wasn't something because I know him. I know he was going to take out that card and write down my actual results versus on what I said I was going to do. So this thing quickly became more like a commitment. You know, I remember my little bald head was sweating. Actually, I had hair back then. I started sweating. <laughs> I was getting nervous and I put it down. But I realized after I wrote that down and I had a copy for myself and he had a copy, seeing my handwriting meant that I said that this was something I was going to do. Now, the next week when we reviewed these goals, was I going to be on target or was I going to be way off? And I didn't want to let him down, right? That was my driving force, just to be honest with you. I didn't want to let him down, but I also didn't want to let myself down. So the power of seeing our own handwriting, I think, is powerful. It's also important to keep it on, on our top of our mind. Like I, I make five big goals for myself every year. And I, I copy it and I laminate it. I keep a copy in my car. I keep a copy at my desk and I keep a copy in my briefcase. Those five goals are always in my face. And so that's why I'm hitting 99% of those goals each and every year. I think the thing that we have front of mind is also the thing that can be on the front of our effort as well as our hearts. And it's so important, not just the writing it down, but giving it to somebody, handing it to somebody. That step of accountability is so important. And not only accountability, but it sort of helps you temper what you think you can achieve. You're not going to write yes. down, I will become a millionaire tomorrow if you have to hand right. it to somebody else and see their response. You may want to write that down and say that you know, to yourself and then feel good about yourself and put it in a drawer. But I love that idea of having somebody else sort of check your homework, you know, check your work. That's right. It's very important to, to have people that you can share the goal with. Now, I don't want you to have an account, accountability partner that's like kicking down your door to come in to check your goals or see what you're eating or what you're doing. But it's good to have people with like-minded spirits that you can talk to about it. Because when you verbalize something, people hear you. Right. When you say I'm going to drop 15 pounds or I'm going to start to save more, eat out less or whatever that is, sharing that with people is important. And I don't care if you're married. If you're married, you've got a built in accountability partner in your spouse. But if you're single or newly single, 
Find a friend that's like-minded. Find a friend that's trying to achieve some things as well. And if you all will just touch base on it, whether it's a phone call or a text, just like once a week, watch what happens. The, 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 the potential of you reaching that goal increases, in my opinion, every time you have a communication about it or you look at it. Why? Because you get reminded. I'm also a big proponent of using my calendar functions for reminders about my goals. Um, I'll have a reminder come up every two weeks on those five big goals and I write myself a little bit of note on my progress and then I set the reminder for the next two weeks out. So again, front of mind means it can be at the front of our effort. Chris, I want to talk about jobs a little bit. You spend a great deal of time emphasizing that the millionaires that you write about and that you surveyed aren't all hedge fund managers and business owners, but everyday people working everyday jobs. You, we, you talked about this a little earlier. You write that 96% of millionaires you surveyed enjoyed what they did for a career. And you said it earlier. I wanted to repeat it because I think that's mm-hmm. a shocking number that I don't think a lot of people would expect. This to me shows when you're doing what you love, building the strong work ethic comes easier. And then with that combination, you can find the financial success as well as the personal success and the self-worth. This is such an important concept that goes against that idea that you either choose the low-paying job you love or the high-paying one that you simply clock in and out of. You're using the passion for your job to fuel good money habits. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. I mean, looking at it, and it doesn't mean that you have to automatically find the right job immediately. Sometimes that's a career progression. You know, my friend Ken Coleman helps people kind of figure out and and, and dig into to understand their passion, that thing that drives them. Because I'll tell you this, I'm on book tour right now running from city to city. I'll be out on the road for 26 days, right? The average person would pass out 50% 50 through this thing. And my team that's with me, we're all wired and fired up about what we're doing. You know why? It's not work. I love what I do. I love helping people. So I'm doing this thing because it matters to me and people matter to me. So it's not work to me. And so I think there's something to that, finding your passion spot, the thing that matters to you, the thing that gets you up out of bed and gets you excited. Uh, Again, I'm not saying I love every aspect uh, of this job, you know, working on this manuscript and handing it in to my editor to watch them bleed on it, right, to give it back to me uh, to say, fix this. That's tough, but that's part of the process. But I think it's important for us to understand that it's not about the job you work. It's not about the income you have. We did the survey and found the top three positions uh, of the millionaires in the study. They they weren't hedge fund managers, like you said. Uh, they they won't. It was less than seven percent uh, were working in, in a senior vice president role or higher. Less than seven percent. So the top three professions uh, that in this survey of these millionaires were number one was engineers, which isn't a big surprise. They're good at planning stuff, right? Number two were accountants. That's not a surprise either. They're good at counting stuff. Number three shocked me. Teachers. Teachers. This is a profession that's undervalued and even underpaid, in my opinion. So how did teachers get there? Well, I think we have to look at what does net worth mean, right? And that is understanding what you own minus what you owe. What you own is your 401ks, your 403bs, your home if you've paid it off, which, by the way, millionaires are paying their homes off in under 11 years, Okay, so you have all of these things here as an asset minus what you owe. That's anything you have debt on. Well, if a teacher has been focused and they got themselves out of debt and they have a $500,000 house and and they've got $550,000 over in in a 403B, if you add that together, they're an everyday millionaire. 
And so helping people to learn the math, but also understand the potential of where they are. Maximizing your income by having certain skills helps you grow your money. I'd love to go back to that piece you just mentioned on paying off your mortgage as quickly as possible, because I think this is a calculation people sometimes struggle to make. They say, mm. okay, I have extra money this month. Maybe it will get um, 8 or 10% in the market. Why should I put it toward my mortgage? So what's the argument there in, in paying down that kind of debt, mortgage debt, as quickly as possible? I think, Susanna, it boils down to one word, risk. When you have debt, you have risk. That means you have to make a payment month in and month out. The thing that I learned the hard way about debt is that it doesn't care about a sick child. It doesn't care about a job loss. You know what debt does? It takes. It takes and it requires. And I've seen debt steal the joy from a lot of people, having that thing strapped around their neck. And so looking at it and, and doing the math, uh, I'm a former banker, former mortgage company holder, uh, owner, excuse me. And so looking at it and helping people understand your home is your largest monetary asset. If you can pay that thing off and own it free and clear, now what you've just done is freed up that mortgage payment of $1,500 to $2,000 a month to now start to do what for you? To grow for you. Maybe you use a percentage of it after you've paid off the house to increase lifestyle. Or, or maybe you use a percentage of it to, to save extra for, toward college for your kids or your grandkids. Whatever it is, you just gave yourself a raise. You just freed it up. And so I don't want people doing fuzzy math anymore. Okay, the fuzzy math is where you say, well, hold on, Hogan, I've got a three percent, you know, interest rate on my mortgage. Right. And I say, well, hold on. What did we talk about? Interest that you pay is a what? And they say, what's well, a penalty? And I say, OK, so you've got a little penalty on the mortgage. OK, gotcha. It's still a penalty because you're paying it. I said, well, what if you didn't have to pay that at all? And so the mindset is I don't want to do fuzzy math. I want to do clear math. One plus one always equals two in my world, never equals three. And so it's a personal preference for where people fall. But I encourage people to start investing for 15% of their household income, saving toward college and paying extra toward the house. Doing those three things at the same time after you've gotten out of debt and build up emergency fund, what it does is it builds consistency in your budgeting where you have this mindset that my goal is not to buy this home. My goal is to own that bad boy free and clear. So it sounds like you're accelerating those mortgage payments only after you're kind of doing the 15% savings, you have the emergency fund, you've got the building blocks already set, and then it's about debt payment acceleration. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, I want to clarify, though, in the process of how I walk people through, I want them to attack debt first, all consumer debt, credit mm -hmm. cards, car loans, even student loans. I want them to attack that, then build up a three to six month emergency fund after they've attacked that debt, which on average has taken people 18 to 24 months if they're super serious, but then build up that emergency fund of three to six months of expenses, park that in a money market account, because emergency funds have to be liquid. You need to be able to get to them when life happens. Notice I said when life happens, not if. So having that there. Then from there, you would start to invest 15%, save toward college, and pay extra toward the mortgage. So doing things in that order, people love it uh, because they're able to focus on one thing at a time. Sure. Chris, what are some actionable steps that I'm going to give you three different age groups, basically, that people can take right now? to get themselves okay. on the path to gaining wealth. And the, the age groups are going to be pretty clear. The first one is the 25-year-old group. The next is the 40 and then the 60. Obviously, they're, they're going to be at different stages of their wealth-building lives. But what are some 
simple things they can do right now to get themselves in that on that right path. To get themselves on the right path to become a millionaire? Yes, to, okay. to building wealth. Yeah, well, I would say this. For the 25-year-old, I want them to do a few things. Uh, all of these age groups, however, are going to hit on these things. I want them to still budget. I still want them to save and build up an emergency fund, and I want them to invest for the future. So that's not going to change regardless of status, okay, and age group. But for the 25-year-old, I want them to understand the value of plugging in and using the Roth IRA. I mean, you know, this thing is huge. 79% of these millionaires said the number one tool they used to help get to millionaire status was employer-sponsored retirement plans. 403Bs, 401Ks, Roth IRAs, and IRAs. So saving early puts you on an incredible path. Also, for that 25-year-old, slow down, right? You're going to see something and think you want it, but don't confuse a want with a need. It's okay to save up and pay cash for it, but don't go get that car payment because you saw this cool car. They're going to come out with a new one each year to make you feel bad about the one that you bought. So be aware, slow down. For the 40-year-old, you're right now in the prime of career or maybe income earning. Keep lifestyle in check. Right? It's real easy to get that mindset to think that I deserve the boat or I deserve the motorcycle or whatever it is. And that can get you off track. So you want to be careful of those life decisions that you're making as you move forward. To the 60-year-old, just to really dial things in, you know, you get to that age, you're serious about stuff. You're not worried about people's opinions. You're trying to do things for yourself and your family. So what are some sacrifices you can make to fast forward you on that path of building wealth? Um, I had a couple, they were 62 and 66. They were living in a 5,000 square foot home. It's just the two of them, right? Kids are grown up, been gone. And they were talking to me about, hey, we needed to really save more toward retirement. And the house, you know, they owed maybe 100,000 left on it. And it was worth around 750. And I asked them, I said, well, who all is living in that house? And they're like, oh, it's just the two of us. And I go, huh. I go, so do you all go to the second floor? They're like, nope, <laughs> never. I go, okay, so you're just living on the first floor. I said, how about this? What if you sold that house? And took some cash and went and bought paid cash for a three hundred thousand dollar house. That would free up four to five hundred thousand dollars you could put towards your nest egg. So for the sixty year old, I want them to start to brainstorm what are some tweaks or changes they can make in their lifestyle to help them fast forward their their wealth building. And now, what are some of the biggest or some of the most common mistakes that you hear from people trying to build wealth? Oh gosh, common mistakes. Um, that, that you can borrow your way toward building wealth. Uh, this is something that just drives me crazy uh, because they're not thinking through the other side. Uh, people that make knee-jerk decisions without really looking and thinking about the long-term play, um, whether they're making a job change or a career change, um, and then failing to invest. You know, uh, too many people are just thinking, hey, I'll catch up later or it doesn't matter right now. But when you dig into to compound interest, it's a mind blower. You know, Albert Einstein called it the eighth wonder of the world for a reason. Uh, it works magic on our money. And I firmly believe this. If you plant money and you treat it right, you can grow money. And so this is something that people need to know. These basic skills, put yourself on the path to be in control and then stay focused. All right. Susanna, do you have any other Follow-ups, any questions left unanswered? I think we we covered what was on my mind. Thank you, Chris. Oh, you're very welcome, you all. Thank you. I was just going to say, I just want people to believe that the American dream is still alive and well. 
You know, we'll hear in some media reports that you can't build wealth anymore, that the little man can't get ahead. And I'm telling you, I have talked to these regular everyday people uh, that have stayed focused and taken the steps in the right direction. Um, I spoke to a millennial just last week. You know, he's worth $500,000 at age 26. You know, that didn't happen by accident. It happened because of focus. So I want people to know, regardless of where they are right now as they've heard this today, that they can make a decision to improve and to get better. That the American dream is available to you. That you can grab it with both hands. You don't need a permission slip. You just need the right effort. What's what's next for you after the book tour, Chris? <laughs> after book tour, I'll get back and, and really start digging into this and figuring out ways to extend this message. Uh, whether it's events, whether it's an online curriculum or video, whatever it is, I want people to believe that this is possible. So I want to figure out other ways to connect with the, all these millionaires that I've talked to and really dig in and get more of their story. Uh, in the book, we have the statistics available for people. Uh, we also have the information uh, that I learned from this talking to all these millionaires, but we have their stories in the book too. Uh, that's the thing I'm excited for people to read because you'll read some of these stories and you'll say, if they can do it, I can do it. And that's one of the goals that I wanted to do. The book is Everyday Millionaires, How Ordinary People Build Extraordinary Wealth and How You Can Too, which is out now. The guest is Chris Hogan. Chris, thanks for spending time to talk with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you all. It's been a pleasure. And Susanna, thank you for joining us as well. See you on future personal finance episodes. I'll be there. (laughs) And a thank you to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it, and if you have personal finance questions related to debt, saving money, loans, or credit you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails and we'll try to answer a few on the next personal finance episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on personal finance information, check out money.usnews.com slash personal finance, where we have all sorts of advice on spending, budgeting, banking, taxes, and much more. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.